Today we are uh, in uh, <clears throat> we are in Genesis 42, and today's lesson we'll be doing uh, verses 21 through uh, 28, Lord willing. Uh, it's only eight verses, but there's an awful lot in that passage. Uh, just so you know, those study sheets are handed out for next week's lesson in case you hadn't figured that out. <laughs> so if you think I'm off by a week, that's why. Uh, but um, uh, we do have study sheets. We probably have study sheets here for this week. Uh, uh, we do here. Does anybody else want these? Okay. There you go, sir. There you go. And as I was saying, there are only we're only looking at eight verses today, but I'm not even sure we'll get all the way through those because there's so much, uh, so much in these verses. Uh, as I was studying it this week, I just uh, I was impressed by how many lessons there are just in those few verses that we're looking at. We are, of course, in the middle of our story of Joseph and his encounter with his brothers in Egypt. And uh, last week we looked at verses 10 through 20 in the in the original uh, or in the first verses of the chapter up through about verse nine. The brothers came uh, to Egypt and they uh, uh, came to buy grain in the course of the famine. And then uh, uh, Joseph recognizes them. They are not recognized. They uh, they do not recognize Joseph. And uh, Joseph accuses them of spying, and we talked about all the reasons for that. And it wasn't it wasn't uh, retaliation on uh, Joseph's part. It wasn't because he was bitter or angry. But he's, there are things that he needs to learn. There are things he needs to discover about his family, so that he can cooperate with God in the fulfillment of the dreams that God has given to him. And so. Uh, Joseph accuses them of spying and the passage we looked at last week was the dialogue or the interaction between Joseph and his brothers on the charge of spying and how they responded to that accusation and uh, Joseph's uh, apparent intransigence in insisting that they are spies and the arguments that the brothers made to try and prove that they aren't spies and then we talked about them being thrown in prison, etc. So that's just a, to kind of prime the pump a little bit. What are some of the things, before we go into today's lesson, what are the, some of the things you remember that we talked about last week that stick out in your mind? Okay. We, we, we did talk about that. Uh, in one sense, they are honest in regard to their coming to Egypt to buy food. In that regard, they are honest men. They're, they're, they haven't come to spy, but they certainly are not men whose lives have been characterized by integrity. And they've been living a lie now for over 20 years. So that is kind of an interesting thing that they say there. And, and part of Joseph's mission here over the next uh, year or so will be to try and discover, uh, you know, exactly where are his brothers. So as far as uh, their integrity is concerned, what else? All but one, uh huh. Right. So he alters his plan. The original plan is that he's, he tells the brothers he's going to keep uh, 
nine of them and send one of them back. Uh, and then he puts them in prison for three days. Apparently, I don't know, it doesn't really say why, but I assume he put them in prison so they could figure out uh, exactly which one of the brothers was going to go back. I don't know if that was his intention. But it apparently gave him time to reflect on his plan, and he changed his plan. He says, because I fear God, this is what we're going to do. And his, his alternate plan was to allow nine brothers to go home and only keep one in confinement. Uh, and uh, so that is the new plan that he sets forth. And, and uh, as Karen was pointing out, it, it seems like in reflecting on that, it, that just seemed like the more responsible thing to do because he's got family back there that really he's responsible for. That's the whole point of his dream. When, when God gave him the dreams that he was going that the, that uh, his family, that his brothers were going to bow down to him and that his family was, his, and his parents were going to bow down to him, uh, the real point of that dream is not the honor that he's going to receive, but the responsibility that he will have for his family. And, uh, and so he's very keenly aware of that, that he has a responsibility to his family and to the well-being of his family. And so he, he opts to send the nine of them back with the food for the family. Anything else? It's an amazing story. It, it really is. And, and in today's passage, we come to, to, uh, to, uh, to, to a part of the story that's just really full of feeling and full of pathos. It's, it's probably, along with one or two other parts of this story, of the story of Joseph, it's probably, these verses we're going to look at today, uh, probably in one sense, uh, some of the most poignant uh, of all the accounts in Scripture of anything. It's, it's hard for me to, to think of, of many more stories, if there are, of Scripture that are just so loaded with poignancy and pathos and emotion and feeling as this encounter that Joseph is having with his brothers and particularly the verses that we're going to look at today. And, and as I was thinking about that this morning, one of the things that I enjoy about the story of Joseph is that when I allow myself to just get sussumed into it, just get absorbed in the story, it just, you're just moved along with it and you feel so much feeling and you feel so much emotion and you feel so much passion in the story. And that's one of the wonderful things about the story of Joseph. If, we're a, if we allow ourselves to identify with the brothers or to identify with Joseph or to identify with, uh, with Jacob, we, we, we get swept up in that feeling and that emotion. And I think that's a good thing. I think that helps, us, helps the Scripture come alive in our lives. The peril that we face when we stop to actually study the passage is that we can, we can analyze and critique and, and, and discuss all the various features of the story and what's going on. And when all is said and done, we've lost the passion. We've lost the feeling for it. So my hope today would be that, that at, the, at the end, after we've analyzed this passage that we're going to look at today, these eight verses, and thought about them in depth as we're going to think about them today, that we will not have lost the wonder of, what's, of all the feeling and all the things that are going on. I hope maybe we'll even feel it more as a, as a result. Uh, so let's pick it up then. We're, we're in chapter 42 again. And uh, last week uh, he had announced his intention of his new plan at the end of verse uh, 20. Uh, he had said, or at verse 20, he said he was going to send them all, uh, all back but one, keep one. And that, that by that uh, method, whether they, if they brought Benjamin back, their story would be verified and they would not die. The implication there, incidentally, in the statement, he says, you will not die. It, the implication in the statement, and we'll see this as we go on in the story, is that they're going to be allowed to trade in Egypt. Okay, that, uh, that, that, that they're really facing the threat of death on two counts. They're kind of caught, if you will, between the devil and deep blue sea, to use a cliche. They, they, they are caught with the threat of death because they're charged with, spot, with spying, but they're also facing the threat of death from famine. Okay, so they're facing these two 
you know, very difficult situations, uh, terrifying situations actually for them, as we'll see. Uh, and, and what Joseph is saying to them is if you can just verify to me that you're not spies, uh, you will not die. You're not going to die from, you know, being charged with spying and being executed here in Egypt, nor are you going to die from famine in Canaan because you will be free to trade with us. And that becomes the, the uh, uh, that becomes clear as the story unfolds. Uh, so, so that's what's happening at the end of verse 20. And in verse 21, he says, uh, then they said to one another, truly, we are guilty concerning our brother because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us, yet we would not listen. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. Reuben answered them, saying, did I not tell you, do not sin against the boy and you would not listen. Now comes the reckoning for his blood. They did not know, however, that Joseph understood, for there was an interpreter between them. He turned away from them and wept. But when he returned to them and spoke to them, he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. Then Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to restore every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. And thus it was done for them. So they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed from there. As one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money and behold, it was in the mouth of his sack. Then he said to his brothers, my money has been returned and behold, it's even in my sack. And their hearts sank and they turned trembling to one another, saying, what is this that God has done to us? Okay. Well, it's very easy for us to to in, in identifying. I think as we tend to do as we go through the story, identifying so much with Joseph. I think sometimes it's difficult for us to understand the absolute terror that his brothers are experiencing. Okay. And and that becomes clear, I think, in part in this verse, uh, not only in what they say, but that they say it when they say it. Okay. They have encountered this accusation of swine, of, of spying. They've had this interaction with Joseph. They've tried to defend themselves. Joseph insists that they're slave, uh, that they're spies. He sends them to prison for three days. They're probably in the same prison that he was imprisoned in. They're there for three days. Then he apparently brings them out and he, and he announces to them, okay, I've changed my plan. I'm not going to keep nine of you here. I'm just going to keep one of you. And the rest of you can go back and take care of your families, but you've got to bring Benjamin back. When we read that, we kind of breathe a sigh of relief, right? Because we go, okay, it's not such a bad situation. But that's not how his brothers see it. You notice that? You know, it's at this point here that finally they start to crack. You know, now, we don't know what they were saying to one another in those three days in prison. It may have been they were having this discussion in prison as well. But it becomes clear that even with the apparent lessening of the intensity of the situation as a result of the new plan, they are still really distressed. They are really alarmed. Okay. And so they say to one another uh, there in verse 21, he says, truly, we are guilty concerning our brother because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us. And yet we would not listen. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. Now, uh, does anybody have a, a New International Version here? Okay. What does that verse say in, in the New International? Uh, uh, 21. The, actually, the first, the first statement of the brothers. What do they say? 21, where, yeah, where the brother, the, that first sentence of the, the brother speak, what does it say? Okay, that's good. Okay. Notice what it says there. Surely we are being what? Punished. Okay. Uh, what other translation? Does somebody have New American? What does it say? We are guilty. Okay. I think uh, uh, English uh, standard version says guilty. King James says guilty. So there's, 
Two different ways that that, ver- that word is translated there. Okay. But what's significant about that word is that it actually carries both meanings and they are inseparable. Okay. That the word that's translated as guilty or punishment in your, in your translation, the Hebrew word there actually carries the meaning of both guilty and punished. Okay. And that they're really inseparable. Okay. So it's not that in some places it's, it means guilty and in other places it means punished. But that really it means both in every place it's used. Okay. So when the brothers say there, surely or truly we are guilty or punished, what are they saying? It's a legitimate punishment. Okay. It's a legitimate consequence because we really did this. Okay. And it was really wrong. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, really, yeah. This is it. You did it. And what's happening here is a clear consequence or effect of your actions. Okay? That's what they are acknowledging. Okay? And you'll notice they begin their statement with truly. Okay? There is no doubt in their minds. You know, I've had situations in my life where things have happened and I've gone, well, you know, I wonder if this is happening because... That happened back then, you know, okay? And you kind of wonder if God's doing this because I did that, you know? There's no doubt in these guys' minds. They are beginning to see just exactly the thing Joseph wants them to see, incidentally, is the correspondence between their actions and the things that are happening to them now. And that's what Joseph wants. And they are now beginning to see a correspondence between what they did and what they are currently experiencing 21 years later. Okay? So, so truly, they say, we are guilty, and the things that are happening to us correspond to that guilt. The things that are happening to us are the consequences of our guilt in what we did with our brother. Now, what specifically, don't answer this question without looking at the verse, what specifically are they saying they are guilty for? Okay, they saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with them and they what? Did not listen. Okay. Now, I just want you to note that, and we'll come back to that, but I want you to note that the specific thing that they are so, that their conscience is so agitated about at this point is not the original action of selling them into slavery, but it is the subsequent action of their refusal to listen to his pleas when they saw the distress of his soul. Notice that? Now, why, we might ask ourselves, is that? I mean, you know, if I was thinking, oh, well, I really blown it here, and this is a consequence of my having blown it, I would think, you would think, I would think, I don't know what you'd think I would think. <laughs> okay. You would think that I would be thinking, I sold my brother into slavery. Because that seems to us to be the most heinous part of the sin. But that's not what they're thinking. And the reason they're not thinking that is because because there's something happening in their experience that corresponds to something that they did earlier. And it's that correspondence that's at the front of their minds. And what is it that they are experiencing now that had also happened earlier in their sin with Joseph? They are begging. They are pleading for their lives. They are distressed because they are making a plea of their innocence and a plea that they are being mistreated and this Tyrant, Zaphonath 
this irrational tyrant will not listen to reason and is throwing them into prison and, uh, and threatening them with death even though they are innocent and, and are vigorously pleading their innocence. And they are so distressed by this. And as they are distressed by this, it comes to their mind, this is exactly what we did to Joseph. Not only did we mistreat him, but we refused to listen to him. When we actually saw with our eyes the distress of his soul. That in itself is interesting that they say they saw the distress of his soul. How often do you see the distress of somebody's soul? We don't see that very often, do we? Most of the time, people hide the distress of their soul. When you walk out of this classroom today and you walk down the halls of this church, you're going to be walking past people who are distressed in their souls. But you don't have any idea of it. You're not going to see it. Because we, we don't show those things very often. We're very cautious about showing the distress of our soul. But Joseph displayed openly for them the distress of his soul. And they hardened their hearts against that. And they refused to listen. Okay. Yeah, Gary. Yeah, well, that's true too. Yeah, they very, very well may have because they were so full of hatred. Yeah. Yeah. Well, then we go to the second part of the discussion. And this apparently is all taking place kind of over on the side. Okay. Somebody pointed out, I think Karen pointed out that, that the narrative probably doesn't tell us everything that was going on and everything that was being said. So, so we don't know exactly how this happened, but the brothers are assuming that Joseph isn't hearing this or isn't aware of this, which means that, that one, he, even if he overheard him, he, he wouldn't understand it because he only speaks Egyptian as far as they know. But the second thing is, apparently they think he's not going to find out. So apparently they think the interpreter's not even really paying attention. So apparently this is a discussion that's going over on the side. And the first part of it is the brothers having a consensus together that we are guilty. And what's happening to us, this distress we are experiencing, corresponds to the distress that we ignored or we disregarded in the life of our brother. Okay. And then when you're really at a crisis point like that in your life, what you really need is somebody beside you to stand up beside you and say, I told you so. <laughs> and that's exactly what Reuben does. You know, at this point, you just want to kind of pop him in the face. <laughs> now, this is not the thing to say, because you would think that if Reuben says this, it's going to provoke a defensiveness on the part of the brothers. But apparently it doesn't. We don't see any reaction to the brothers. But Reuben speaks up here and he does his little I told you so. Now, don't don't read too much into Reuben's defense here or Reuben's uh, uh, accusation here, I should say. Uh, Reuben is not completely innocent here. He's been part of this 20 year cover up. Okay, so he's not completely innocent, but he very clearly did. And when we studied that part of the story, we saw that he stood, he stood up for his brother and his intention was to rescue his brother out of the pit and restore him to his father. So quite clearly, uh, Reuben uh, really did have some positive qualities here. Reuben's got a lot of problems and we're going to have some more of them here in, in our story as we come up in the next week or two. But, but so Reuben has his problems, but at least in this regard, he has acted commendably in that he that he uh, really did speak up and try to rescue Joseph. OK. And so at this point, he reminds his brothers. He's just basically agreeing with what they've already said, only he's trying to point out, listen, I wasn't in on this at the start. OK. And he says. He says, this is what I said to you when I told you, do not sin against the boy. And then he says what? You would not listen. I find this fascinating. That the narrator in telling the story here of the brother's 
movement towards repentance, and I don't think they're there yet, but the movement towards repentance, that the narrator twice emphasizes what? They didn't listen. They didn't listen. It's if what the narrator is trying to impress upon us is, is there were two sins there at Dotham. There was the sin of selling their brother into slavery and there was the sin of not listening. And the second was the greater sin. Because that's the one that the Holy Spirit is apparently impressing these brothers with at this hour. Is you didn't listen. And I, I, I kept noticing that as I was studying that this week. And I'm going... Why doesn't he emphasize they sold him into slavery? I mean, that was what was wrong. And it clearly was wrong. It was a terrible, it was a heinous thing for them to do. But the other thing that's, that's so sobering about the story is that when they were wrong, God sent them a message to say, this is wrong. And he did it two times. Right? He did it first, how? They're in, they're, they're, pardon? They had the dream. No, no. It had nothing to do with the dreams. I'm talking about right there at Gotham, God gave them two words, two messages to tell them what they were doing was wrong and they should stop. What were those two messages? Joseph pleading for his life was the first. They saw the distress of his soul and they hardened their hearts against it. And the second was what? Reuben's warning. Yes. Reuben warning them and saying, do not sin against the boy. Do not shed his blood. This is wrong. Okay. So they had two warnings from God. And they closed their hearts to both. What were you saying? It's amazing how Reuben had saved his life. At least he saved his life. Yes, he did save his life. Yeah, they were going to kill him. Yeah. Yeah. Although, Although he doesn't believe he did. Because he says, now comes the reckoning for his blood. So the assumption is on the part of the brothers that when they sold Joseph into slavery, he eventually died. They've never heard anything from him. They've never gotten any word back. He's not come back home. And so apparently they've concluded that he's died. But in fact, Reuben did save his life. Okay. But, but as I was thinking about this, I was thinking, it's so fascinating to me that the Holy Spirit puts the spotlight here not on the original act of selling them into slavery, but on the hardness of the hearts that would not listen to the voice of God. And as I thought back in my own life, and, I, uh, and I've had, uh, I've been thinking about this a lot lately, and, and in, in regard to myself, and also in regard to other situations and people that I'm aware of, and, and I've just been thinking how they're, they're kind of, Two kinds of mistakes that I've made in my life. Sins. I use the word mistake you know, in the sense of sins. They're the kind of sins that we commit presumptuously. You know, they're just things we do. And in, and in one sense, they're almost sins of ignorance. You know, we're just we're really, you know, we're young or we're immature or we just we're not. We're not on our game, so to speak, you know, spiritually. And so we just do things and they're wrong. And, and and in Scripture, sometimes they're called presumptuous sins. And, and at one point, David says, Lord, keep me from hidden sins. You know, those, those things that we really just, we're really not cognizant of the fact so much that we're sinning at the time. Okay? There are those sins. Those are terrible sins. They're things for which Christ suffered on the cross. So I don't mean to downplay them at all. And I have plenty of those in my life, and you, I'm sure, do too. But I also have a collection of sins in my history and in my life where I was going down the wrong path. And God sent a word to me. Maybe it was a verse of Scripture. Maybe it was somebody who He sent alongside of me to say, Rick, don't go down that path. But God sent a word... Uh, to me a word of warning or a word of pleading and I hardened my heart and I just said I, I want to do this I, I think I want to do this and I've done it 
Which is the greater sin? I think this passage teaches us which is the greater sin. There are those sins of presumption and hidden sins and sins of misunderstanding and sins of foolishness and those kinds of things. And then there are those sins where we just simply hardened our heart to the voice of God. And, and we don't oftentimes like to think that it's the voice of God when it's some person, you know. And actually, at least that's been true in my experience, that if I read something in Scripture and, and, and I've got a pretty good clue that God's saying, Rick, you need to change your course of action, I tend to take that pretty seriously. But when it's a brother or sister in Christ who is saying to me, or even maybe a pagan, (laughs) saying to me, this is not the road you should walk, Rick. My pride oftentimes says, what do they know? Yeah, I'm a Christian. I have the Holy Spirit. Why should I listen to them? And it's so easy to dismiss the voice of God when it comes to us through the pleadings of a Joseph or the warnings of a Reuben. And that is the thing, this is probably the thing that most struck me in this passage is I realized how, in, how dangerous it is when we fall into sin or when we're walking down a path that's going to lead to sin and God sends a word to us. God sends a message to us and He says, do not walk down this path. This is wrong. And if I do, if I continue to walk down that path, if I disregard the message that God has sent, that is the greater sin. And that is the the thing that's going to call for greater retribution or greater discipline down the road than even the original sin did. So, so Reuben says his little piece there and he says, he says, now comes the accounting for his blood. And and I just, you know, it's, it's so hard in some ways to think about this and yet in other ways I can relate to it. Folks, it's been 21 years. It's been 21 years since these guys sold their brother into slavery and refused to listen to his pleas and refused to listen to the words of Reuben, the warnings of Reuben. It's been 21 years and nothing has happened. They got away with it. They got away with it. Looks like, doesn't it? Because it's been 20, I I, I mean, it's not to say that they weren't saddled with guilt and dealt with all the psychological and emotional burden of knowing that they'd sold their brother into slavery. I'm I'm sure that was there all that time. But as far as actual, the actual accounting for their sin, they were free and clear. Except they knew, they had to know in their hearts, eventually there would be an accounting. How do they know that? Because they had the Noahic covenant. And in the Noahic covenant, God said, you shed a man's blood and your blood will be shed. And, 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 and they know that. And it's like Reuben, has, and I don't know how much the other brothers were sensitive to it, but apparently Reuben was particularly sensitive to it. This, this is what's happening now is what I knew always, always knew would eventually happen. But now is the reckoning for his blood. Though the mills of God grind slowly, yet they grind exceedingly small. Though with patience he stands waiting, with exactness grinds he all. And this is the reality that Reuben and his brothers are now facing. You know, the, the simplified version of that quote is, the wheels of justice grind slowly, but they grind exceedingly small. And things sometimes go a long, 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 long time and we say to God, God, where is the justice? Where is the justice? Why, why don't you deal with this situation? It goes on, you know, I mean, this week, we've seen it displayed, you know, all over the news for us. You know, for years this thing has gone on, this scandal that has broken out there in Pennsylvania. For years this has gone on. And and I'm sure for many, many years people were thinking, oh, you know, well, we're off scot-free. You know, we've gotten by with this. But eventually, 
the wheels of justice grind exceedingly small. And Reuben realizes this. Now, the brothers, because of their sin and because of their guilt, really have a misperception of what's actually going on. But we'll get to that uh, in, in, a, in a few minutes, Lord willing. <clears throat> so, so, the brothers have had this discussion. And what's going on with Joseph? He's listening and he's understanding everything they say, and they don't know it. Okay. So, he is now discovering more of the things that he set out to discover. Okay. He needs, in order to be able to cooperate effectively with God in the fulfillment of his dreams, he's got to know everything he can possibly know about his family and his brothers. And so he's on a quest to discover those things. And he's already discovered some important things that we looked at last week. He discovered that his father's still alive. He discovered that Benjamin is still alive. He discovered that there may still be some favoritism going on in the family. Uh, he he dis, uh, uh, There were one or two other things. I don't remember what they all were. But that, that he discovered. Okay. But now he's discovering more. Now he's discovering what his brothers now today think. And this is what's really important to him. What his brothers think today about what happened 21 years ago. And so all this is coming out. And what does he do? He turns away and he weeps. Now, why does he turn away? He doesn't want to say because why? OK, he's still trying to carry out this disguise, right? That he's, he's still trying to carry out this facade. OK, so he turns away and he weeps. Now, be careful here. Why does he weep? Nobody's going to answer because I, I said you be careful that now nobody's going to answer. You know, what intrigues me about this is that the Holy Spirit directed the narrator to tell us just so much and, not, not, and no more. So for some reason, the Holy Spirit wants us to know that Joseph wept. Right? And I always thought I knew why he wept until I started thinking about it. Why do you think he wept? Elaborate. Okay, so he's weeping from the emotion of realizing that he had a brother who stood up for him. Okay. Anybody else have a suggestion? Pardon? Okay, so he's seeing the distress that he is causing <laughs> on his brothers and he can relate to it. And so he's weeping for that reason. And he wasn't forgotten. Okay, just realizing he hadn't forgotten about him. He wasn't completely out of their memory. That's when I had thought. Okay, okay. So it is important that we know that he's weeping and he's not, he's not taking pleasure in this. Yeah, yeah, okay. Okay, so he's been reminded. Remember earlier he said, God has, you know, when he named Manasseh, God has made me forget my affliction in my father's house. Okay, now it's being forced back into his memory. So all that emotion of what he experienced there at Gotham is coming to the surface. Okay, so he's still thrilled that his father's still alive. So the question is, now I've got half a dozen different explanations for why he was weeping. Which one's right? We don't know, do we? Maybe all of them. It could be also he's seeing God's hand in all this. And he, okay, he's seeing God's hand. And this is this is what intrigues me. Now, actually, I think Scripture does this in a number of places. That the Holy Spirit gives us just so much information, and then right at the point where we think it's crucial, we know something He doesn't tell us. You ever notice that? Okay. He does it all the time, doesn't he? Okay. Well, sometimes he does that because it just isn't important. It's just not important to know. Is that the case here? I'm not sure it is. I think there are times in Scripture when the Holy... Forgive me if I'm being presumptuous here, but I think there are times in Scripture where the Scriptures are silent because the Holy Spirit wants 
to deal with us each one personally where we are in that situation. And when I read Joseph Webb, my mind jumps to certain reasons and all, your minds, they all jump to different reasons, right? And it's probably because of where you are in your life. The things you're going through in your life. And I think one of the things that God wants us to do when we read Scripture, when we read the narratives of Scripture, He wants us to put ourselves in the place of those people. I think that's, where, that's when Scripture really impacts us, is when we allow ourselves to identify with the characters of Scripture. And, and so, I would suggest to you that I don't know exactly why, and it may be, in fact, it was a combination of the reasons we've just stated. You've had times in your life, I'm sure, when you, you just felt emotion just swelling up inside of you and you couldn't explain why. Maybe it, was an, maybe it was an emotion of joy. More often in my mind, it's when I find myself inclined to weep and I go, I don't know why, I don't know why I'm inclined to weep here. You know? But there's just a combination of emotions that are welling up inside of us and that's happening in Joseph at this point. Yeah. It reminds me of... Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Well, so he weeps, and then after he weeps, what does he do? Okay, so he reassumes that harsh. Demeanor, doesn't he? He, he? he takes on again that, that harshness. So he's carrying on the facade, if you will, or the disguise. And he takes Simeon and he binds him. But you notice it tells us, it wants us to know something specific about his binding of, Joseph, of Simeon. What is that? Before their eyes. What's going on? What's happening? Why is he doing that? Why is he why does the Holy Spirit want us to know that Simeon was bound before their eyes? I mean, we might have assumed that anyway, but the Holy Spirit goes out of his way to point that out to us. See his distress. Here it is. They are now back at Dotham, seeing a brother in distress. Can you imagine what Simeon was saying and looking like at that moment? When he's being bound and he's going to be confined in Egypt under this irrational, tyrannical Zaphonoth Panea? And his brothers get to go home free? <laughs> yeah, and and you know how oftentimes you tend to read into other people what's characteristic. What kind of a guy is Simeon? Yeah, he's a guy who slaughtered a bunch of people. He's a very violent. At least he was at one point a very violent kind of guy. There at Shechem, he and Levi. And so he's seeing his brothers packing their bags and getting ready to leave and his eyes are probably about this big and his brothers are looking at him and going, I've seen that look before. I saw it in Joseph and I did not listen. And the test will be, will they see the distress of Simeon and will they respond differently? But I have this nagging question passage brings up all kinds of nagging questions. And I have this nagging question. Why is Joseph doing this? Didn't he just hear his brothers say, we are guilty and being punished for our sin? And did he not just hear Reuben point out to them and they apparently concurred? Now comes the reckoning for his blood. He's Hasn't he heard his brother's change of mind? Why is he going through with this facade? Why does he keep going? Why doesn't he just stop at this point and say, Hey guys, I'm Joseph. And I see now that you've changed. 
and I forgive it all and let's get on with things here. Why doesn't he do that? Why does he keep the facade going? And it doesn't, not just for a few minutes here, but it goes on now for maybe as long as a year until his brothers come back and you know, he, he drags it out. Why does he drag it out after what his brothers have just said? Okay. Okay. Yeah. You see, what his brothers have said so far could amount to no more than just regret. Now, it may be the fruit of repentance, but how do we know if somebody's repented? Contrite spirit and how do we see that? How do we how do we know for sure somebody's repentant? They change around. They do the opposite. Joseph doesn't know if these guys are repentant. You see, with regret, people acknowledge that what they did was wrong. And with regret, people often acknowledge that the consequences correspond to the wrong they did. But that's not repentance. Repentance goes a lot further than that. You see, hell's going to be filled with a lot of people with regret. They're going to acknowledge, once they have seen God, they're going to acknowledge that they have hated Him and walked against Him and fought against Him. They're going to acknowledge that. And they're going to acknowledge that was wrong. And they're going to acknowledge that hell is the consequence of that. But they're not going to be repentant. And there's a world of difference between regret and repentance. And it's very easy to regret when we finally face the consequences. But it's another thing entirely to repent. To actually have a, live, a different lifestyle. To live differently. And what Joseph needs to see is, does this really make a difference in how these guys live their lives? That's what he has to determine. And so he sets about carrying out his plan and he gives them the grain and he sends them away and he puts the money back in their sacks as we see there at the end of the passage and he sends them away. And they get to the first night's lodging place and one of the brothers happens to open his sack to feed his donkey and he discovers the money. And... Their reaction there is, you know, I mean, if I go to Walmart and I come home and I find all my money in my sack, you know, my first reaction is, hey, good, I didn't have to pay for that. You know, that's my first reaction, right? Okay. I don't think I'd be trembling in fear. These guys are, these guys are actually so fearful they're trembling. That's what it says. It's how much stress they're under. Okay. No, that's that's later. That's later. This is the first first time. Okay, so yeah, that'll be later. So they, but only one of them. The others don't find the money until they get home. Okay, so it's just one of them at the lodging place. He uncovered. He opens his, and it says their hearts sank, and they turned trembling to one another. And what do they say? What has God done to us? What is this thing that God has done to us? That's not so much a question as it is an exclamation. Is these guys are actually trembling in fear because now they recognize that the accounting for the blood of Joseph has come. And what's happening is they're being picked off one by one. First it's Simeon. And it's the threat against Benjamin, who's even innocent in it, but the implications that that has for their father. And so the, 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 the judgment is going to, over, is, is going to roll over and, and sweep up even innocent people like Benjamin and Jacob. And they're seeing that. And Simeon has been picked off. And now, and now this 
supposed thief, <laughs> one of the brothers, we don't know which one it is, but one of the brothers is being picked off, okay? He can't, he can't go back to Egypt. If he goes back to Egypt, he's dead. Because now, not only is he a spy, he's a thief. And so it's like the brothers see this relentless judgment of God coming down on their sin. And it's just, they see, they're trembling in fear because they see it's beginning. It's just beginning, but they can see how it's just going to eventually just consume them all. And they are just scared to death. But they're wrong, aren't they? This isn't God's judgment at all. This is God's mercy. This is the grace of God. God sent Joseph ahead of them in order to save their lives. You see what sin does to us and our perception of the processes of God in our life? Here's the process of God in their life to save them and reconcile the family and restore them all together. And that's what's really going on. But sin has so corrupted their way of thinking and 20 years of living and denying and suppressing that sin and that guilt has so distorted their thinking that their perception of the process of God in their life has been destroyed. And you might say, well, come on, Rick. They're being fooled by their brother. Well, remember Joseph? He was sold down into Egypt as a slave. And he was down there for 13 years before he was elevated to the throne, to the prime ministership. He went through that for 13 years. And through it all, the psalmist says, the word of God tested him. And Joseph through all of that, was believing and trusting. Even though everything in the, about the processes of God in his life looked dark, he believed that God was somehow working out the fulfillment of those dreams. But these brothers don't have that faith to go on, do they? They are riddled with a sense of guilt. And sin has so distorted their view of God and so distorted their view of the process of God that, that they are trembling in fear because they fear they are about to be destroyed when in fact they are about to be saved. Okay? Well, we'll pick it up next week.